Let me tell you, 11 hours on a flight with a baby, I never thought I'd do that. You've just unlocked like a very special league of parent achievements right there. Yeah, she's agreeing in the background. <laughs> I heard that. Wow. So you made it back. How did the flight go? Did it, was, it, was it horrible? No, it was totally great because Turkish Airlines has the best food. I was looking forward to every meal. And they even have these bags of natural wooden toys for kids to play with. And so naturally, I took that bag and I played with it for about an hour until my daughter complained. And Well, you got to do the inspection. I mean, you can't just give a random toy to your daughter. I was inspecting it. <laughs> It's your dad job. <laughs> well, I'm glad you guys are back. I tell you what, I don't even know if I could do that flight, let alone the baby. So congratulations. Thanks. Well, it's good to be back. It was really interesting meeting up with Turkish Bitcoiners. They were so like us and also different. Oh, really? Give me a sense. Well, they're all very interested in personal freedom, in the ability to basically protect yourself from bad government policy. And when you live in Turkey, which has 90% inflation per year, it's very obvious the need to protect yourself from that, which is odd because I think most Turkish people I meet who were not part of the Bitcoin meetup were altcoiners. They weren't mm. into Bitcoin. They were messing around with insert name of silly altcoin. I think they'd be stable coiners. That would be my guess is they'd be really into Tether. People don't tell you the composition of their portfolio, but I think you're right. I think that if you're not into Bitcoin, the first step is to be really into stable coins. Yeah. I got to imagine in some ways that the drop we have seen in Bitcoin's price feels less volatile than their local currency feels. Imagine living in a country where that's the case. That's wild. It's hard to imagine for people in the first world that have pretty functional currencies. Though, to be honest, the euro has lost 30% of its value over the past year. So maybe people in the European Union are coming around to that feeling of not being able to rely on your currency, which frankly, my advice there would be the key is to panic first. You need to get out the door before <laughs> the crowd jams it up. Right. It's like when you're at the end of a ball game, you think, should I leave now or should I stay to the very end where it's a massive crowd getting out? It's that exact situation. And you know, the rich are already making their moves. They have a special door just for them. <laughs> I think they have a bat phone. Right. They're astral projecting into the stadium. That's what it is. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on Friday, August 5th, 2022. I'm your Bitcoin Dad and I am recording as always with... Uh, me. Hi. Hey. Hey, Chris. Hey, everybody. Hey. Thanks for joining us. Hey. Hello. Hi. It's good to be here. In the spirit of tight episodes, we have another tight one. Today, we're going to discuss financial restrictions in Israel, asset seizure laws in Australia, an ECB paper that ponders the holy grail of cross-border settlement, some research from Switzerland that calculates the cost of financial repression. In tokenomics, we're going to talk about some Sybil attacks on the Solana. Solana. I think it's pronounced Salooner. I'm getting that thing where I can't pronounce anything anymore. <laughs> Is it rubbing off? Yeah, it's a podcaster thing. I think it's from tongue exhaustion. Oh, okay. In tokenomics, it turns out major Solana projects were the work of two brothers pretending to be tons and tons of Anon developers. Gosh, what a surprise. And then we'll just briefly touch on some energy news, which is pretty dire. Even though oil prices are falling, it looks like the U.S. is touching the limits of available fossil fuel energy. And then in Bitcoin education, we're going to dive into stable 
Paths, which came up in my interview with Kamal from Galoi, which is a way to basically hold US dollars and Bitcoin in the same wallet, but under the hood, it's all Bitcoin. I think when you look at the whole layout today, all of these lead to Bitcoin. All roads lead to Bitcoin this week. Oh, I think that's our episode title. I love it when we say the title in the episode. It's like yeah. in a movie when they right. say the title and Top Gun. Like, oh, that's the, oh, oh yeah. yeah, that was the title. I actually do like it. I'll often like tap the screen on to verify. Oh, yep, that is it. Yep. <laughs> but, you know, when you put in this story about Israel banning the use of cash purchases, I thought, okay, well, you know, that's interesting. Why do I care? And then I started reading through the details of this. I guess I'm surprised at how direct they are that they are trying to get people to stop using cash. Quote, we want the public to reduce the use of cash money. End quote. Right there. I don't think it's a controversial thing to say anymore. I think that most people are slowly internalizing the idea that using cash is wrong or criminal or there's something shady about it. I think that that's a pretty common point of view these days. Maybe, I suppose. I mean, and what they're proposing is essentially dropping the maximum cash payment limit to $1,700 for a business. U.S. dollars and 4,300 U.S. dollars for a private citizen, which, all right, my kids are getting old enough now where they like to actually go buy things on their own and they use cash. They don't have a bank account yet. And, you know, when I go outside the cities, I often find the use of cash goes up a lot more. When I go to dinner with the generation before me and up, they always pay for dinner in cash. And if there's multiple people there, they always want to settle everybody's uh, amount in cash. Like I still see significant cash usage. And that's so easy to do using cash. Whereas when you're using cards and apps, settling up when multiple people are at a meal, it's like this nightmare. Yeah, the tech just isn't there yet. And there's not enough standards. You need some sort of open network with standards that application developers could build on top of. And then we would start to see that kind of stuff, you know, like Bitcoin and Lightning. But we don't have that for debit. And so when I see this, kind, of, I think it feels hostile towards just the average citizen. But I suppose if they're allowed to spend up to $4,300, it gets harder to argue that. But $4,300 today for the average private citizen is not going to be... What $4,300 used to be in like five, 10 years, just inflating like crazy right now. See, these are very low numbers. We actually touched on that previously with an article about how reporting limits for financial transactions get lower and lower with inflation. And if inflation is 12% this year, here's an easy trick. In economics, we have a rule called the rule of 72. And so if you want to take an interest rate and figure out how long it takes a price to double at that interest rate or the price level, so this is a tool we use when we think about inflation, all you have to do is divide 72 by this interest rate. So if the interest rate is 2%, then prices are going to double in 36 years. If the interest rate is 10%, then prices are going to double in 7.6 years. Well, guess what? The interest rate is closer to 10% than 2% percent right now which means that every financial reporting limit, all of these cash limits, they're likely going to be half as much lower in real terms in just a few years. So this is incredibly hostile to privacy. And let me just read a quote from the Israeli tax authority. They should permit people at least once to declare all the cash money they have and put it in the bank. Otherwise, the cash might not be used like before, but it's still out there going around. If they find the legal way to do this, it could start a change. Well, what does this imply? To me, this implies that they know that there is anonymous cash out there and they want you to put it in a bank, associate it with your identity. And if you don't do that within some timeline, then they're thinking about ways to demonetize that cash, essentially change the properties of money because it's fiat. You can do that if it's fiat money. 
Mm. The only legitimacy of a fiat dollar bill is that it was issued by right. a central bank, which means the issuer can say, okay, well, this serial number is no longer legal tender. And they can change the rules on you constantly. So this is not a new law, right? This is just a lower limit to an existing law. And the reason why I point that out is because the data clearly shows that since they first put this law into effect, the actual amount of free-flowing cash in the market has only increased. So it has completely failed at reducing their primary objective, which they directly say is, quote, we want the public to reduce the use of cash money, end quote. And they also say, quote, the goal is to reduce cash fluidity in the market, end quote. And since this law has been affected, it has only increased cash in the market. And their entire justification for all of this, they say, is they want to crack down on anonymous crime that is being paid for with cash. They kind of imply that if they could take away the money from criminals, then crime would stop, which is a pretty big leap. And I don't know if economists are exactly the right people to make that particular judgment call. I think crime continues. It just finds another way to pay for it. I mean, significant politicians, they pay for their crimes with things like diamonds and paintings, right? Crime continues. It's just a different form of payment. Or in-kind transfers. Right. It's a very, dare I say, statist view, institutional view. This idea that the problems are these external people doing something, these criminals. Well, I feel like criminal is becoming a word like terrorist. It just means someone you don't like at this point. It's been overused. Let's talk about the real reason behind these cash transaction laws. So a little context. I couldn't dig up an article on this, but I know anecdotally that Israel has done yield curve control before in the 1980s. So coming out of the 1970s with very high energy prices, Israel was experiencing double-digit inflation. They had very high government debt. There were a lot of financial problems in Israel. And the way that the government solved that was they capped interest rates on government debt below the rate of inflation, and they kept it there for, I think, four or five years. And what this did was this essentially inflated away government debt as a fraction of GDP, and it also inflated away citizen savings. And so Israelis know that the government will use monetary and fiscal policy and financial regulation to basically take your savings to shore up the government balance sheet. And Israel's a small country. It's sort of on the periphery of the system because they're small, they have to import food and energy. So this is a very fragile position for a country to be in. They don't have a lot of internal resources to fall back on if their currency collapses or if things turn against them. And so they're the ones who kind of have to move first to shore up their currency. And that means potentially using yield curve control again to get their government debt under control. And frankly, cash and Bitcoin and gold, these are real assets. I mean, not cash, but these are real things that can kind of fall through the net of financial repression. It's difficult to charge someone a negative interest rate if they take their cash out of the bank, right? So I think that that's the real thrust of this law. And I think it leads nicely into news from Victoria, which is a province in Australia, about these new asset seizure powers that they're giving their police. Because again, this is sort of essentially yield curve control. One perspective is that it's an attack on property rights. And giving law enforcement the ability to seize assets is again, an attack on property rights. And Bitcoin is the ultimate pristine digital asset. And 
of course, they're going to want to get their hands on digital assets and wallets. For sure. And self-custodied Bitcoin with a well-protected seed. This is a very frustrating asset to seize because this asset can only be unlocked with a secret in my mind. How are you going to get it out? There's no way to extract that secret from me in a civilized manner. You'd have to use violence to do it. And so I think Bitcoin is a solution here because this sort of asset seizure stuff is very common in the United States. I don't think it's that novel anymore. Most of the reporting on this was about 10 years ago in my recollection. But in the United States, police departments are infamous for seizing cash, seizing property, claiming that it was used in the process of a crime or something, and then just literally taking people's cars, taking stuff they own. It's really an assault on property rights. And this link that you have in the show notes for the story about Victoria, if an offender gets arrested with drugs or with a gun, they will now qualify for getting their crypto asset seized. So this new law gives the law enforcement the power to contact the exchanges and seize the digital wallets to analyze maybe did they use the digital assets to buy guns and drugs because it's so common that they can just assume that they should get these powers. And this is what's happening now is so if you get arrested with a drug of some kind or a gun, they can take your wallet. Right. And that's logically incoherent. There's no connection between drugs and guns and cryptocurrency. It's just a way of painting people so that you can take their rights away. Oh, this person had an illegal gun. Therefore, they don't get any rights. This person had illegal drugs. Therefore, they don't get any rights. Well, laws like this expand the definition of people who don't get rights larger and larger. And frankly, I think that the trend is that eventually most people will not get rights because it'll turn out that we live in a society where so much behavior is criminalized that we've all done something that can strip our rights away. And this is a very unjust system because in a world where it's really impossible to follow the law, that means the law is applied selectively. And so the difference between living a happy, legal, lawful life and having institutions destroy your life is, did someone institutionally decide to look into you and now suddenly everything the problem and you're in serious trouble, but you're no different than other people. This is pretty scary stuff. And frankly, you know, I think Bitcoin fixes this in the sense that if you're living in a society, which is most societies right now, where property rights are being reduced over time, inflation is raging and cash is getting banned, the exit doors are being closed. And Bitcoin is the ultimate exit from this system. Because once you have Bitcoin in your own wallet under your own control, you're protected by asymmetric cryptography. It's very, very, very difficult to take that from you. And now, even if you are in a situation where an institution wants to take that from you or wants to play hardball, well, now you at least have some leverage because you can just forget that seed and burn those coins if you don't want to share. Or, you know, maybe you have some leverage to make a deal. I don't know. I think it improves the power dynamic between an individual and the society they live in if they can opt out using Bitcoin. And if Bitcoin is being used at scale, it takes tools away and it forces the state to use the correct and appropriate measures. Like this situation in Israel, it's a blanket limit on everyone, on how much cash they can use, how much cash they can hold, how much cash they can move around because of something some might do, because of some, quote, criminal activity that some might do, which is all very vague. You know, it can be used as such a threat 
threat and the state has the power, so let's go ahead and use the tool. But if Bitcoin was used at scale, that tool would be removed from the state and they would have to come up with a more rational policy that is inevitably going to be better for the people to actually manage the situation. Perhaps they would be addressing the root problems of crime instead of addressing the symptom. Indeed. I think that we've expressed a view before in this pod that power is this weird, regressive thing. The more power you have, you don't get smarter or more thoughtful. You get dumber in a sense, and you want to start bullying people around. And so my view is that institutions and government work best when they don't have too much power, when the goal is to sort of negotiate with the population and find some sort of accommodation as opposed to just imposing blanket rules. That's my bias. I don't know about you. Yeah, and I don't even really consider it to be like a political thing. It is just kind of simply a humanity thing. And when the citizens, the people that are supposed to be the ones that are in power, when that is just kind of a wink and a nod and a promise, guess what? It gets taken away. But if we have civil tooling that isn't weapons, it's not fighting, it's just sovereign money, then we start to shift that power dynamic. We start to put the people back into control because ultimately it's the purse strings and (laughs) that's really what's going to control the government. Beautiful lead in to this article from Swiss RE. So Swiss RE Institute, I believe it's a reinsurance think tank. And reinsurance is this interesting thing that we need now because the world has become so financialized. And they basically provide the research for companies to provide asymmetric insurance products to the market. For example, if you're insuring homes against flooding, you need these weird things called hurricane bonds, where it's this financial instrument that pays off when there's a hurricane. Otherwise, you don't get anything. This asymmetric insurance, but only for institutions that might have to make insurance payouts. It's all very complicated stuff, but this institute has also published a little article. I think it's part of a larger publication, which you can download. But this little blurb is about how financial repression, essentially central banks keeping interest rates low, have actually affected the balance sheet of regular people, of of households. And so what they say is that they think that financial repression since 2008, because it's denied people of interest income on deposits, pensions, and life insurance assets, it's actually a net tax of about 3.5% a year on U.S. household disposable income. Now, I did a little bit of math, rule of 72 and all that. Chris, would you like to guess what a haircut you're taking if you're being taxed 3.5% a year over 14 years? That's hard math to do because it's hard to hard to appreciate how that appreciates. <laughs> right. Well, I'll just tell you, that's 67%. So that means that since 2008, households in general, these are U.S. households. I'm sorry for the U.S. focused nature of this data. That's just a thing in finance. U.S. households have lost 67% of their potential interest income over the last 14 years due to financial repression. But what's interesting is that this also affects institutional holders like pension funds, and insurers. But for these institutions, they've only lost 1.5% per year, which actually comes to around 23% over 14 years. So this tells you that financial repression and these unfair centralized monetary and financial policies, they impact individuals much more negatively than institutions that are on the inside of this system. And frankly, that's just systemic inequality, in my opinion. And they kind of point out that this has gotten worse quicker because of the 
central bank's response to the COVID lockdowns. And so the problem has accelerated in a way that I don't think everyone's realized. And it, it takes me back, Dad, to that conversation that I was overhearing. I was eavesdropping on a few months ago when I was getting my RV repaired and I was in the waiting area and I was hearing this couple, probably nearly twice my age, maybe a little bit less. I guess I'm, I'm not as young as I'd like to think, but much older than me. And they had kind of based their entire retirement planning around return on CD interest rates and other things that were just going to pay them interest rates on money that they had saved up. And because that has been failing them over the last couple of years, they've been instead drawing from those funds. And now they're in a situation where they're nearly out of money and they're not they're not getting the interest payments they expected. And so the wife of the couple was looking for a job. She's nearly 70 something and she's looking for a job because the whole thing is just sort of falling apart on them because the way that you just financially were responsible and planned just kind of is evaporating. I think we said this one or two episodes ago, but this is not the time in history to do what your parents did. It's not the time to accept the normal dogma of what's financially responsible, what people should do. This is a time to look at the world with inquiring eyes and try to figure out what's actually going on. Because frankly, I expect most people to get completely financially wrecked in the next 10 years. I mean, we've already been getting wrecked for 10 years because of these policies of financial repression. But you couple these policies with a changing international reserve system with the US dollar waning, like the financial oil of the world. I just think that so many people are going to get really financially hurt. And I'm not saying put everything in Bitcoin because I don't think that would necessarily work for a lot of people because we all have short-term liabilities. We need to pay rent. We need to pay for our children's education and food and health and all of this stuff. But long-term, how do we save for the future? I think that is a solution that Bitcoin provides. Short-term, I have no idea. <laughs> Ultimately, it's a long-term savings technology that requires network adoption, which will take time. The thing is that the need for that is only going to increase over time. You know, they end this blurb from the study with the lesson is that the longer this monetary environment persists, the harder it becomes, the more repressive it becomes on the people, i.e. the policy hasn't changed. Currently, we are in a quantitative tightening environment in the United States, and we are seeing interest rates being raised by most of the Western banks at this point, central banks. So the monetary environment is changed, but the overall policy that's driving all of this has not. And as long as that policy continues, and it, they may double down on it, they may have to double down on it because they're not capable of bringing interest rates up above the inflation rate. And so inevitably, they'll end up having to print again. And when they do print again, it's going to be on like Donkey Kong, and we're going to see a doubling down on this policy like you've speculated also recently about. And when we see that, it's going to be even harder on folks. And that, unfortunately, as sad as it is, is will create more demand for Bitcoin because more and more people will become aware of this stuff. These will start to become more and more common topics of conversation and people will begin to research and learn what is a safe haven, what they can use for the future. You know, people who are of our generation and younger that have 10, 20, 30 years still ahead of them to save, they're going to be a lot more open to something like Bitcoin. The end of this article is super dark. We believe that the costs of financial repression outweigh the benefits. Okay, the cost is normal people getting wrecked. The benefits are we get to keep the old people and institutions in charge. Okay, no duh. The lesson of the global financial crisis is that exiting ultra-easy monetary policy becomes harder with time. 
Again, no duh, because as you keep interest rates low, you encourage the financialization of the economy and the buildup of excessive levels of debt at the corporate level and at the sovereign government level. Which we're seeing to an extreme already. Right. I imagine the publication that they've made that this is an excerpt from is pretty good. It's titled Financial Repression, Here to Stay and Stronger Than Ever. But essentially, they're saying, we think the government should review the cost-benefit analysis of financial repression and see if it's sustainable. Well, it's clearly not. And clearly, there's no political appetite to exit financial repression. And why is that? Well, because it requires incumbents, people with a lot of financial assets, to take a huge haircut. Well, there's no political solution there. No one who's wealthy wants to become less wealthy. And these are the people that generally have outsized political representation. So what do we do? This actually brings us quite nicely to stable sets, which I discussed briefly with Kamal from Galois. You can check out that episode. But in summary, stable sats is a way to basically take Bitcoin and interface with an exchange to sell a Bitcoin option. Now, this happens in the Galois wallet. The Galois wallet is a custodial Bitcoin wallet, so you don't control the keys to the Bitcoin in that wallet, but it's designed to be a community bank. So the idea is that in your community, there are some people who are considered very trustworthy, and they engage in a multi-sig quorum that safeguards the Bitcoin inside the community bank. I think one other term for this is second-party custody as opposed to third-party custody because you know these people as opposed to third-party custody where it's a faceless institution that doesn't care about you. I think another way to think about that is if the Galois multisig holder screws you, you know where they live. So I think there's some carrot and stick approach to trust in the hmm. Galois banking stack. So could I be the Galois custodian? It doesn't actually have to be the Galois folks, right? I could be like the Galois custodian for my family. Galois does not custody anything. They're a technology provider. Let's talk about the wallet a little, okay? The Galois Galois Wallet is this thing that runs on Kubernetes. So it's a scalable web app and it provides a backend for mobile wallets that hold Bitcoin and can interface with Lightning. They can do on-chain Bitcoin or Lightning transactions. And the Galois K cluster, this serves all those wallets and it interfaces with a Spectre multisig that holds the majority of the funds. And then there's a messaging service where the holders of the Spectre multisig are alerted if the Galois hot wallet needs needs topping up. There's also a, a Lightning Node implementation as a part of this. So this is a pretty serious software stack. And Galois does not hold any funds for anybody. They're not a custodian. They're just providing the technology. And then the Bitcoin Beach people and the Bitcoin Jungle people, their community has deployed the tech and delegated custodians. So we could fork the Galois GitHub and create the Bitcoin Dad Pod wallet. There you go. Which would be Galois on the back end. Yeah. We could all have a bunch of custodians. Make the dad bank. Sure. We could also do this with the Fediment too. And so this is cool, right? So there's been some criticism, which is, oh, this Galois stuff is bad. This Fediment stuff is bad because it's custodial. Well, yes and no, in the sense that is keeping your Bitcoin on Coinbase less safe than keeping it in a Fediment or in a Galois wallet? I don't know. It's a really different risk model. I'd argue the Coinbase risk model is higher because obviously they hand over information to any government authority like the IRS and that kind of stuff. That seems like a higher risk than I don't think you'd have that with a local Galois group or a Fediment group. Sure. But if you are using the Bitcoin Beach wallet, then there are a whole bunch of people in El Zante, El Salvador. And if they get compromised or they get greedy, they could theoretically collude to steal your Bitcoin. So maybe for me, the Bitcoin Beach wallet wouldn't be a good solution because I don't 
don't know those people, but maybe the Jupiter Broadcasting wallet or the Bitcoin DadPod wallet would be better because I kind of know those people and I feel more comfortable with them. Yeah. Just an idea. Yeah. Okay. So what is StableSats? Basically, the Galois team identified a problem with Bitcoin usage in El Zante using the Bitcoin Beach wallet. And the problem is that Bitcoin is a great long-term saving technology and it's a great payment system. Bitcoin on Lightning is a great payment system because you can pay anyone anywhere in the world instantly. That's way better than Visa and it's cheaper than Visa. Well, what's the downside? The downside is short term, Bitcoin is crazy volatile. So what people were doing was they were transferring funds via Galoi, Strike, whatever, and they were basically saving in dollars and transacting in Bitcoin. And Galois' take on that was, this is just how people use money. This is how it kind of needs to happen. And it needs to be convenient for people so that they want to use Bitcoin and it solves problems for them. But where are these dollars that they're saving it? Well, if you're using Strike, then Strike is holding dollars, maybe in a U.S. bank account. And that exposes you to a bunch of risk factors. So they had the idea to basically save in dollars, but using Bitcoin. And the way they do that is with this thing called StableSats where inside the Galoi wallet app, when StableSats is enabled, you just have a dollar balance and a Bitcoin balance. And if you want dollars, you just move Bitcoin from your Bitcoin side to your dollar side. And what's happening on the back end is there is a Galoi trading bot that is basically selling a Bitcoin option on a connected exchange. And so the Galoi wallet, whatever community is running that Galoi wallet, they need to set up an exchange account and then they have a little bot on there who's selling an option that gives you dollar exposure. And the way that works is you're taking some of your Bitcoin, you're giving it to the bot and the bot is saying, okay, who wants to buy an option on the upside of that Bitcoin? And so right now, if the Bitcoin price is $20,000, what that means is if you buy this option, you're giving me cash. And if the Bitcoin price goes to twenty-one thousand dollars you made a thousand dollars but if it goes to nineteen thousand dollars you lost a thousand dollars and so it basically locks in the current dollar price of that bitcoin it protects you from downside appreciation and upside appreciation if that makes sense so they're creating a marketplace or is this going to be on existing exchanges where does this uh you know buying and selling take place basically any exchange that has the right kind of api they just want to plug it into existing exchanges and use an inverse perpetual swap to sell the upside of some Bitcoin to create a dollar derivative, essentially. I think they're using the OKX exchange right now to do this. So the question is, why would you do this? Why wouldn't you use a stable coin? Well, basically their argument is it's just simpler if we do everything on Bitcoin and if you have a stablecoin in here, stablecoins are really complicated because you have to trust the stablecoin issuer. The stablecoin is generally running on a really crappy blockchain like Tron or something. There's just a lot of complication and it's a separate payment network. And so if you have USDT, if you have Tether on Tron and I've got Tether on Liquid, we, they're not interchangeable. They're completely different payment networks. And that's inconvenient and reduces the value of all of these dollar stable coins. Whereas if dollars are just Bitcoin derivatives, everything's on top of Bitcoin. That's a very integrated network with a lot of synergy. Seems like maybe though in a really volatile period of time in the market, somebody could try to go after this and deleverage things, right? I mean, isn't that possible, at least for a period of time with this system? My understanding, having looked at the Galoi liquidity paper, is that the risk is that Bitcoin goes to zero on that exchange. Uh. If Bitcoin goes to zero on that exchange, even temporarily, you could get wiped out of your Bitcoin balance. 
other than that, the real risk is just the exchange and what happens on the exchange. Are they being regulated? Right. Have they screwed up their custody? Who knows? So that's always a risk with things like this. Well, and if this really took off, who knows what kind of system we could see? You know, when, when Mt. Gox was around, I never envisioned something like RoboSats. And now look at us go. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the sky's the limit. There's so much cool stuff happening. This is just one of several new projects like Fediments, like RoboSats that makes me so bullish on Bitcoin. I just feel like it's getting easier and better to use every day. And I think it's sometimes lost in the mix because there's so much flashy nonsense and drama happening on these altcoin protocols. And here's Bitcoin just slowly getting better over time. Yeah, even during a bear market, we're seeing a lot of building. I don't really perceive any slowdown in the things being built on top of and around of Bitcoin during this slowdown. And that's not the same as past slowdowns. I mean, years ago, like, when the bear market came around, it was really just like the core dev team still working on stuff. People kind of just moved on when the bear markets came last time. But now these days, the building continues. Maybe it's because of Bitcoin's quasi-religious belief that it's actually a new messiah. Really taking all the shots they could over at the ECB. <laughs> That's a quote from this ECB paper, which is, it's a joy to read. We've linked to it directly. Sorry, it's a PDF, but blame the ECB for that. The paper is all about the search for for the holy grail of cross-border settlement. The title is Towards the Holy Grail of Cross-Border Payments. And they really set it up big. In there, they start with, For a thousand years, the perfect cross-border settlement has been sought. And we may find it within the next 10 years. Do you think that they've been reading Arthur Hayes' series about the European debt crisis and they've internalized Lagarde as sort of a Joan of Arc figure, <laughs> like a, a medieval knight? And so we have this... Holy Grail reference. That might also explain why they accuse the Bitcoiners of being religious. They seem to be so subscribed to their own dogma that they can't see the solution in front of their face. Yes. And, and the thing is, they're not wrong in the sense that every cross-border settlement technology or system has drawbacks. And their existing system, which is based on current banking infrastructure, has many, many drawbacks. Liquidity, capital requirements, these institutions are very fragile. It's slow. Clearly, something better is suggested by the existence of the internet and Bitcoin. But they really have trouble processing what Bitcoin is. Like when I read their section on Bitcoin, it's almost like they're saying Bitcoin is the holy grail and then they roll it back immediately. They basically do. I was surprised for the majority of when they're writing about Bitcoin. It's like all of these positive things and then they even double down on it. They're like, they kind of essentially say it gets even better if everyone's just using Bitcoin and they never convert to fiat. Then there's all these benefits, which they then describe. And I'm like, yep, that's that's right. And then they essentially attempt to dismiss all of it, even though it addresses like to give you perspective, the European Central Bank has done this big report. And in this paper, they spend many, 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 many pages describing the problems and the solutions the various banking industries have tried over the years to give you context. So they spend 85 percent of this paper describing the problem. And then they get to Bitcoin and it's like checks a box, checks a box, checks a box, checks a box. They end by saying, so you'd think this would just be great. 
But the problem is that dang proof of work, quote, the underlying technology, and in particular, its proof of work layer is inherently expensive and wasteful. And then they say, even though they had all these pros, that if anything, quote, it proves that a decentralized trust creating mechanism relying on proof of work to render a stable and permissionless blockchain is more expensive and less efficient than a centralized or semi-centralized system. Yeah, that's a really interesting point because they say that there's actually a problem with disintermediating financial intermediaries and decentralizing a system because then you can't have human intervention to fix things. And I think the problem there is that the ECB exists to intervene in systems. And so in Bitcoin, they actually see the end of their role in the monetary system. Right. Another interesting thing is that they spend 20% of the paper, 10 out of 52 pages talking about Bitcoin, maybe 12. And every other thing they talk about is much shorter. And so it's really interesting that in a sense, the focus is on Bitcoin and everything else is clearly defined in relation to what Bitcoin does. It's as if two different people wrote this, like you spend the front pages of the report describing the scale of the problem and why it's taken a thousand years to even get as far as we have. And then you propose the solution, but then come up with these really wave of the hand reasons why this remarkable system isn't usable. And they have to do extra mental gymnastics because they have to at least address the elephant in the room. It is working for El Salvador as cross-border remittance. That's working right now for El Salvador. And they also have to address the fact that tens of thousands of people supported the citizens of Ukraine when Russia invaded with Bitcoin using cross-border payments. Like, So they've got to like juggle the fact that these things are actually working today and have been successful to just then kind of like, so they throw things in there like, quote, there are also many reports about Bitcoin supporters' quasi-religious belief that Bitcoin is actually a new messiah. And they, they say there are many reports and they cite a single report from 2017. Yeah, it's great. And actually, there were two people who wrote this paper. So it might be fun to figure out who's the Bitcoin bull at the ECB and who's the bear <laughs> right. who keeps on saying, buddy, no, you can't orange pill Lagarde. You got to scale it back here. I'll, I'll just explain how they're religious fanatics or something. <laughs> And then there's also just a bit of irony when they throw shade at Bitcoin's price fluctuations, which, you know, sure it does. But if you zoom out, the price fluctuations of all of the Western currencies, the trend does not look good. <laughs> and so they're throwing rocks, you know. It looks good for the dollar, but the euro's down 30% this year, man. Yeah. There's a word for that, and it's not Bitcoin. <laughs> So it's sort of a bit of the pot calling the kettle black. And one seems like it has a very positive likely outcome with its price stability in the future. And one seems like it's only going in one direction. And I'd be betting on the Bitcoin direction. So the whole thing kind of falls apart there at the end when they dismiss it for really bizarre reasons. Like it really, truly seems to solve a thousand year problem. That's the case they make for it. But then they say, ah, but, you know, proof of work uses a lot of power, so can't use it. But also remarkably fail to ever actually touch on Bitcoin's connection to energy, which seems like a particularly important topic for the global market and a particularly important topic right now, especially when we're trying to figure out how we're going to transition to renewables, which the central banks have a big role in funding right now. Like just they didn't get the complete picture either. Right. And because it's complicated when you start thinking about energy and how how depressingly reliant modern civilization is on fossil fuels. I mean, things get complicated really, really fast. There are no simple, easy, feel good 
solutions here. Everything is a trade-off. Everything is a long-term solution with a lot of places where it could go wrong. And no one wants to hear that. I'm actually not surprised that the energy is an immediate deal breaker on this because these same institutions like the ECB, they're also very anti-gold. And they view gold in much the same way as this environmental catastrophe. And in many ways it is. Modern gold mining is an environmental catastrophe. But why do people still do it? It is because of proof of work. Gold mining is proof of work. Gold is a element that's very expensive to produce more of or to process into a usable form. And this restricts its supply and it makes it some sort of store of value. And gold is a store of value. It's really not that volatile when you compare it to stocks, bonds, and Bitcoin. So your Bitcoin dad isn't exactly a gold bug, but he doesn't hate it. Right. I feel very similar. If you want to try to save some of your wealth, whatever it might be, into gold, I got no problem with that. Go for it. Did I ever tell you that I used to be really into that whole financial independence, retire early, fire thing? No, you've mentioned it to me briefly, but I don't think we really got into it. And that was kind of a thing I thought about before Bitcoin, until Bitcoin just totally took over in my mind. It's really too bad that the FIRE community hasn't embraced Bitcoin. That's a whole nother group like the Linux community that really should be into Bitcoin, but they can't differentiate it from the altcoin scams. And another issue with FIRE is that I think it's kind of a cargo cult in a certain sense, because the way that they think about investing is they backtest portfolios. And most of the data is from the Fiat Bretton Woods era. And so they're constructing a retirement plan that works really well when the fiat system is working. But as our system fails, as the dollar fails as a global reserve currency, it's like a phase change in the financial system. So everything you learn from the dollar fiat post Bretton Woods era, it's not going to be applicable to the new world. And we see that right now because the 60-40 portfolio is a dumpster fire. It's totally wrecked. The people who really did well financially in the traditional system over the past 10 years, it was Kathy Wood who went all on risk, no risk controls, just straight up high tech risk. And she did great until this year. And now she's getting totally trashed. She's sold Coinbase stock at the bottom. And this kind of speaks to how difficult it is to understand that we're moving between financial systems, between financial paradigms. I just bring it up because there's a famous portfolio called the Golden Butterfly Portfolio. And it's 20% total stock market, 20% small cap value, 40% bonds, and 20% gold. And in this portfolio, gold is this anti-volatility tool. And so I imagine that gold will likely be a way of people managing risk for many years in the future. Gold's been around for 5,000 years. It's probably going to be around for another thousand years, maybe, if we make it. Yeah, I would imagine it's going to get a big boost in popularity over the next decade. And it's super simple. It's very hard to create more gold, and therefore gold retains value. And it also retains value because we think it retains value, like Bitcoin, like the dollar, like Apple stock. There, You can do cash flow analysis and whatever on companies. But at the end of the day, that cash flow analysis only matters because investors think it matters. And value investors like Warren Buffett, they got beaten up over the past 14 years since the global financial crisis because the monetary environment and changed. And suddenly, investors didn't care about fundamentals. They didn't care about cash flows. They just cared about narratives like exponential growth and AI and whatever. And that's why Kathy Wood and ARK Invest, the company she ran, was the highest performer for about 10 years until this year when they got absolutely slaughtered as this world that was high on free money and liquidity from the central banks ran into the brick wall of energy scarcity. You know, now we're in a world of scarcity. Things actually matter. 
and it's going to take some time. It'll take some repricing still. That'll be a whole thing. Watching these people make adjustments is funny. That's for sure. That's why I like to invest in the uh, wham bam. Thank you very much kind of uh, crypto projects like your Solaners and whatnot. So that way I can get rich quick. <laughs> I don't think either of us can pronounce Solana today. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't think it deserves to be pronounced correctly anymore. I mean, at this point, I mean, at this point, right? It is a joke. I'm sorry to all of our listeners who are groaning that we're mentioning Solana. It's simply because Solana is a great example of how bad altcoins are. And it was so popular. It was going to kill Ethereum. It was a high speed, super scalable blockchain. It was very centralized. It broke every month. The so-called decentralized node operators of the Solana network had to talk to each other on Discord to restart the chain every couple days. It's a total disaster. And on top of that, it turns out that their massive adoption might not have been so massive. I've always called into question their total transaction volume numbers. I believe they've engineered the blockchain in a way that artificially inflates the transaction volume based on the vote volume of a transaction, you know, coming to consensus, also all being done over the same channel as transactions, thus making transaction volume seem artificially high. But now it seems like there may have been another component making transaction volume much higher than it actually was. And it's um, peak scammy, really. <laughs> it's so peak scammy, right? Because there's a couple of brothers who just managed to just play an entire blockchain and pretend to be 10 different developers. So first, they built a protocol called Sabre, which was a stable coin exchange built on Solana. And then they built Sunny Aggregator on top of Sabre. And their goal was to maximize Solana Solana's TVL. TVL stands for total value locked. And this is one of these slightly BS metrics like market cap that is used to hype a chain. Oh my gosh, there's so much activity, so much total value locked. And basically what they did was they created these interlocking protocols while pretending to be different groups of developers that would rehypothecate funds between the two protocols to double count or triple count or quadruple count the funds in these protocols that would make Solana look really big and attract interest, pump the value of the soul and the whatever coin that they were creating so that they could basically dump their bags on people who YOLO'd in. And I would argue it, I'm not saying that it was intentional, but it may be such that the incentive structure for the development team for Solana is such that this kind of stuff isn't exactly a priority to hunt down because you have to understand that it's a VC funded chain. And so if they can demonstrate transaction volume and total value locked, they can kind of argue that they, they're the successful blockchain, that they're the blockchain that developers are turning to. So having these numbers elevated is a good thing for the people that are backing the project. I'm not saying they're intentionally allowing this stuff, but I'm saying it's probably not a priority to track these kinds of scammers down. A hundred percent not, because Solana was part of the L1 rotation thesis, this idea that you create a new layer one blockchain, you figure out ways to game adoption numbers to get people to YOLO in, you fork all of the dApps from Ethereum to create an ecosystem that people can temporarily make money in and then everyone YOLOs in and that burst in demand allows you to dump your tokens that you've pre-mined and given yourself on these new users. 
and then the ecosystem collapses and you move on to the next L1. That was the L1 rotation thesis. And this description of what these scammers were doing seems pretty in line with that whole model. Yeah, they're moving on now. They're moving on to some other chain I'm not even familiar with. It's incredible. And they'll just probably get away with it. Maybe they'll change their names like Doquan does and just start again. Right. Well, they already have at least 11 names. They can just pick one of those. <laughs> oh, Solana. And of course, over the weekend, just super briefly, everyone was panicked because many Solana wallets were getting drained. And it turned out they found the cause and it wasn't actually a blockchain issue with Solana. Like a lot of times we talk about this stuff. It's the actors around Solana. It's not always the Solana blockchain itself, although occasionally it is, especially the major outages. But the whole thing is just a mess. And, you know, there was a shared vulnerability between a couple of wallets and people got their Solana remotely drained. They just opened up their wallet software without ever clicking a link and they had a zero balance. Yeah, it turned out that something in the Solana tech stack was moving private keys around in plain text and storing them on external servers, which is just every no-no in terms of wallet security. That's what happens on these fly-by-night chains. Like no one really cares, you know, no one cares. And what I've learned looking into how just simply how private keys are generated using Bitcoin wallets and used to generate addresses is that it's very complicated. And to get wallets and systems that work correctly, you just need completely obsessed developers who really, really care about this stuff. And that's just not compatible with the L1 rotation thesis. Well put. It really, for good tooling, you have to have developers that eat and breathe this stuff. They're so passionate about it. And I don't think Solana has that anymore because these Anon scammers who built a whole bunch of protocols on it have moved to another chain. I mean, they were bad, but they were very productive, I guess. And Solana lost them. Now there's some other chain that they're going to try and pump for a while. Mm -hmm. So should we talk about petroleum? Let's talk a little bit about this. Let's talk about energy and maybe in particular diesel. Your RV doesn't run diesel, does it? No, actually, I've been very fortunate in that regard. I thought I was making a big mistake, but as time has gone on, it turns out I've probably saved significant money by using a gas vehicle. There's sort of two stories about the price of gasoline. The first is that I think that the price of oil per barrel has fallen in the last week or two to under $100 a barrel. And I think the perception is that there's a recession incoming. It's going to reduce demand. And this is generally going to be good for the price of gasoline. It's going to go down. And I think that's probably true temporarily because prices are set on the margin. And so if demand falls on the margin, yeah, prices will go down. However, I see a really big problem down the pipeline. Oh, did you get that pun down the pipeline? Hey, nicely done. And it's that I think we're at peak oil this Saudi Arabia trip where Biden went to fist bump with MBS, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, who is, of course, responsible for the vivisection of the journalist Khashoggi. Amongst probably many other horrible things. Saudi only increased oil production by 100,000 barrels a day. That was so little that there was a joke on Twitter. Biden could have basically provided more oil to the world by not flying Air Force One to Saudi Arabia because it's right. so little has <laughs> been provided. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they could just not do a few summits and save that. <laughs> What this tells me is that existing stockpiles of fossil fuel-based energy, and I'm sorry to talk about it. I wish we didn't have to because I find it pretty depressing how reliant we are on dead dinosaurs to live a modern lifestyle. We're at peak oil. That means that long-term energy prices have to go up. There's not a lot of cheap oil just sitting out there. And this stuff is 80% of our energy mix. This is what we build houses out of and cars and wind turbines and everything. 
Well, and move every component of the economy around. There's no such thing as a solar-powered tanker ship or a solar-powered container <laughs> ship or a solar-powered airplane. Literally everything moves using fossil fuels. Yeah, big old diesel engines for the most part. The thing that I read this, we'll have a link to a Reuters report in the show notes. I read this as, yes, inventory is down. That is absolutely a thing. Inventory is down, but also just refining. We're operating right now at like 2018 levels of uh, refinement capacity. That's a particular issue that's not going to get solved. They're not going to necessarily build more refineries, at least not here in the United States. No way. It is also an inventory problem, but I think a bigger issue really is it can't get the refinery production to meet demand. And this also means that while prices may fall temporarily, there's no build of inventories. So that means that if demand ticks up just a little bit in the future, boom, prices shoot up again because there's no buffer. There's no excess supply in the system that we can draw down on. Essentially, our petroleum diesel savings account is empty. I wish I had like big tanks that I could store it in because I saw a report just the other day that summer gasoline demand in the U.S. has dropped to pandemic levels. This is an article that was covered by Yahoo Finance. They're just suggesting that it's now more than a million barrels a day below pre-COVID norms. So demand has gone down because the price has increased so much and because I think also recession fears. So I think you have lower demand in the States because of the price and then you have recession fears being priced in. So right now as we record, the price of oil is $89, which is remarkable because just even a few days ago, it was up above 90 and and now it's down to 89. And of course, a few weeks ago is well above 100. So it's coming down quick. It's a demand thing and it's a recession fears thing. But your point, I think that really sticks with me is that'll snap back. All of that demand that's paused right now is going to snap back. Everybody has the equipment. They have the trucks. They have the boats. They have the planes. Everything's bought. It's just demand is being artificially dampened right now as we you know hanker down. So why are we talking about about petroleum demand on a Bitcoin podcast. I think there are a couple reasons. The first is that because we had to engage with the energy debate around proof of work, it made me personally very aware of the fact that 80% of the human civilization energy mix is based on fossil fuels. I knew it was a lot, but I mean, I guess in the back of my mind, I was hoping it was like 40 to 60%, not 80. To me, I think that this is a wake-up call. I think that we really need as people to be very aware of the fact that a lot of rhetoric about greening the economy and dealing with climate change, it's 100% BS. You can't replace 80% of of the energy mix quickly. And if you want to replace it on any kind of schedule, that means you need to be bringing gigawatts of clean energy onto the grid every year for 10, 20, 30 years. Well, I don't see that happening. So I think that this is just a civilizational level crisis, an energy crisis that isn't being treated. It isn't being talked about. It isn't being acknowledged. Exactly. And we always knew this would happen. We always knew that we would wait too long, that we wouldn't get our renewable act together until it was too late and we'd suffer for it. We always knew that. I I mean, growing up my entire life, I always knew that's how it was going to play out. And here we are. We've now arrived. Energy prices are going to skyrocket. We're at refining capacity. The people who control the source of the oil are the Saudis and Russia and that whole group, right? They're a bunch of bad actors. It's gotten to be absolute worst case scenario. Oh, and a big part of the entire dominance of the dollar around the world is tied into this entire system. And now we're going to try to transition in the next couple of years to renewables. It's just not going to work. And neither one of us say this to celebrate and to laugh in the face of the libs or something like that. Like, 
I would love to have seen us pull this off. I'd love to see us approach this in a reasonable way. And I'd love us to talk about this as adults. If the administration got up there and said, yeah, you know, we're going all in on renewables. We should have done this 20 years ago. And this is what we've got to do now. Instead of going up there and saying, well, Putin's price hike is going to force us to do this. So we're going to do an inflation reduction act which will invest in renewables, and that'll solve it. But you know it won't. You know, we're not having real conversations about it. That's what I think is alarming to you and I. Yeah, indeed. It's been a real journey for me, to be honest. I think another thing that sort of ties into Bitcoin is the petrodollar system, the system of oil being denominated in dollars and the Saudis recycling their dollar balances from exporting all this oil to the U.S. back into U.S. treasuries. That's over. And that system was posited on worthless pieces of paper buying real resources that took a lot of effort to pull out of the ground. What is the implication of this system failing? And the answer is there's going to be a lot more of these worthless little pieces of paper we call dollars circulating. And any other currency than the dollar, it's going to be exponentially worse, I think. Yep. And it's going to start first and hard, hit hardest on the edges and the weakest economies and then work its way up. That's just what's happening right now. Sri Lanka, Israel, economies on the periphery that are very sensitive to energy and food prices, they're going to buckle first. They're going to fail. They're going to enact draconian exchange rate controls, ban cash, everything. And then it's going to move to the center. And what's interesting is this is going to happen in Europe rapidly because Europe is currently facing an energy crisis that honestly looks like something on the periphery. And it's because of this whole situation with Russia and their reliance on Russian natural gas. I think you might look back uh, in a few years as your time of traveling was very prescient, right? To be traveling at the time you were when this hyperinflation is kicking off around the world and to actually be somewhere where inflation's 90% and and talk to the people and actually spend time there. You may have timed it just right. I know it was a a difficult and tricky trip, but you may look back at it and think you you nailed that. Oh, totally. I was so happy to be there. Yeah. I mean, I I wish I could get into it more. Uh, It it was sort of, it had to happen for various reasons, but it was really special going to uh, another country with just a completely different perspective on the universe. You know, Turkey literally exists in Europe and Asia simultaneously. Istanbul is a city that straddles two continents. It's preposterous how multicultural it is. Chris, I noticed that your last office hours was titled, We Hate Crypto. That sounds juicy. I got into it this week, Dad. I don't know what happened. I had a conversation earlier that morning where somebody said, I hate the boost. Well, they didn't say that. They said, actually, quite politely, I have boost fatigue. And I wanted to dig into it and figure out why. And at the end of the day, what we got into is there's a lot of people who hate crypto and anything to do with crypto. And they just write Bitcoin off because of that. And so we really chewed on that. Yeah, I have heard that opinion from others other Linux podcasters. I don't know what to say. I say we stop calling Bitcoin crypto. That's what I say. Bitcoin is not crypto. Bitcoin is Bitcoin. If anyone's interested in this debate, which is sort of raging in the Linux community, check out officehours.hair. Yeah, that's what what I I got. Okay, officehours.hair or search for office hours in any podcast app. Yeah, although it's there's so many shows named office hours that if you do like office hours, Chris Fisher or something like that, it'll show up or search for Chris Last. But otherwise, it's probably just easiest to go to the website. I picked a bad podcast name. I got to rename that thing. <laughs> okay. But go check it out before I rename it, officehours.hair. Which brings us to feedback and boosts. Remember, you can get in touch, bitcoindadpod at protonmail.com or at bitcoindadpod on Twitter. You can also consider joining our Matrix channel using a Matrix client like Element. Links in the show notes. Now, we have implemented a thousand sat minimum to read a boost out on the show, but it's a new policy. And so we got a lot of boosts 
boosts under 1,000 sats, and so we just want to mention them. So some of our top boosters under 1,000 sats include This Is The Future, B-Dale 86, Daniel Perez B, DEC Bot, The Dude, Hernan, Scott Wolf, Newsflash Gordon, and GWG. Thank you so much for your messages. We read every one of them. And then our over 1,000 sat boosters, we can begin with Bitcoin Child, who sent 1,000 sats for the interview with Kamal from Galoy. Restable sats. It sounds a lot like keeping a USD cash balance in Strike, which can be spent on Lightning Network without ever buying BTC, i.e. Lightning spend and receive as a service, but keeping one clear of any BTC tax implications. What do you think about that, Chris? I, I see the point. My wife loves using Strike just for this. I got her onto Strike a while ago, and now she uses it to do like payments for friends that help her out with some of her client work and stuff like that. She's aware of the Bitcoin backend because I talk about it, but to her, it's just not really a big detail. It's just a technical implementation that makes it all work. And she doesn't even think about it. Yeah, that's a good point. So because StableSats is based on BTC all the way down, you're not selling and buying Bitcoin. For a US user, I don't think that there would be a tax reporting requirement. You're selling a Bitcoin option. Is there a tax implication on that? Potentially, but it's not obvious to me. So I think it's probably strictly right. better. If you were selling the option, you know, if you bought it at a dollar and you sold it for $200, then yeah, there's <laughs> there maybe is a conversation there. But then we got a mega boost, 10 10,101 sats from C-Dubs, who is using Boost CLI, which I think you mentioned on the show once, Chris. This is this is a special boost. The Boost CLI boosts are like the full nerd boost. Uh, and C-Dub writes, have you looked into self-custody Bitcoin Roth IRAs? I have one and I hold the keys. Pretty good deal on taxes. I can't join those funds, so I join everything else I've got. I agree that it's a foot in both worlds, but it makes sense to me. Love the show, C-Dubs. Awesome message. And so C-Dubs is talking about CoinJoin. And we mentioned that if you're not sure about CoinJoin, think about CoinJoining some funds and keeping those as your kind of anon Bitcoin stack. And then maybe you have some KYC funds. And so depending yeah. on what the future holds, some might be better or worse than others, depending on how things work out. And he's keeping those in an IRA, which I don't know if we've talked about that on the show, but that is a decent idea. Yeah, I've heard about self-directed Bitcoin Roth IRAs. I think it requires a bit of manual stuff to set up, but it seems definitely worth it if you've got the income and you're at the point where you have to think about tax efficiency. Seems like a really good idea, especially especially if you hold the keys yourself. And then we received one, two, three, four sats from at Marcel. Thanks so much for supporting the show. Hey, Marcel. And then Yukon Cornelius sent us 4,500 <laughs> sats. Thanks so much. <laughs> That's great. This message, I'm not sure if we should read it. Oh, really? What do you think? I mean, this is very personal. Well, we don't know the details, but essentially, which is the best username ever, Yukon Cornelius, they told us how they like to keep their seeds separated, right? So they've got separate safes. Well, I'll just leave it at that, right? I don't want to give too much details. I don't want to give like brand names and information like that. Right. But I actually, I wonder if we could figure out a way for people to tell us how they're doing this that doesn't, you know, reveal too much of their operational security, because I would love love some suggestions. As somebody who lives in an RV, I'm in a home that could get in a car accident. They're prone to burning to the ground, you know, small things like that. Uh, so, but I also don't really want to keep it at my place of work. I don't feel 100% comfortable about that either, especially since there's all kinds of people that come in here, sometimes strangers. Can I have a suggestion? Yes. So I think that for your cold storage stack, 
it makes sense to do a multi-sig like Spectre Wallet. And the most common multi-sig is a two out of three multi-sig. What I think might be a good idea is to actually give the seed to someone else in the sense that if you have friends, family, Bitcoiners who you really trust, with a multi-sig, you need two of the three seeds to spend from the wallet. But if you don't have the wallet file, you need all three seeds to recreate the wallet and then two of them to spend from it. And so you could actually give away two or even three of these seeds to different people who don't know each other, who you trust, and they could protect them. And if they know the seed or they lose one seed, you can get shot one time out of a two of three multi-sig, especially if you have backed up the wallet file. You only need two of the seeds to spend from. So you can do really interesting things with multi-sig because one seed doesn't give you the whole wallet. It's just one part of the key. It's kind of complicated to wrap your head around, but there are a lot of really interesting possibilities there. That is some quintessential Bitcoin dad advice right there. That is some solid Bitcoin dad advice. Thank you. I like that. And Yukon Cornelius boosted in again, another big boost, 4,500, to add some more details. One of his concerns is making sure your seed doesn't burn up. Yeah. And for that, a metal flame resistant seed sheet is a good idea. Jameson Lop has done a lot of research on setting seeds on fire and blasting them with blowtorches, and that might be a good resource. So we'll link to that in the show notes. That is. I have gone through that, and it's something I'm considering very seriously. I see the next boost came in from a username that I absolutely love. Do you mind if I read this one? I read that <laughs> I, boost. I. I. <laughs> Captain Stocks writes in with uh, 1,000 776 sats he writes i enjoyed the wide range of topics but get ready brace yourself he included a fire emoji hot that's actually decent feedback you and i have debated off air are we covering too wide a range of topics should we really focus in on just like one thing so getting that kind of feedback via the boost is super beneficial because you know captain stacks there has a little bit of skin in the game he had to send us 1776 sats so that feedback is a higher signal so i appreciate that that's a good point and maybe we could try to farm some ideas from the community. Do they think Bitcoin Dad is a good enough podcaster to have multiple shows and maybe mix it up so that we have a news show, a development show, and then a more chatty weekly dad pod? I don't know. Right. Just a thought. But we have a way to talk directly with the audience. And if that's what they think they want, it might push us in a certain direction. And it's okay to say no, because sometimes that's what people need to hear. That's a good data point as well. And then we received a big boost from Batar, 5,000 sats, and another 5,000 sat boost from Batar with a message. Pew, pew, Batar's the name. Spraying sats is my game. (laughs) I love that when I listen to some other podcasts that also do boosts and value for value, I hear like Batar come up. But what's great is like... I hear different pronunciations like Petar, Petar. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Petar. I hear, yeah, I hear Petar. I feel like there is a hoisted by his own petard or something. That's it. That's where I went with Petar. That is it. That's got to be it. Let us know. Send us a boost in. What is you boost enough that we should be saying your name correctly? Maybe if you're going to establish a boost relationship with the show, the first one includes pronunciation details. I think there's enough characters for that. (laughs) Yeah. Establish a boost relationship with us. Yes. <laughs> is this an open boost relationship? <laughs> it is. The whole network is open. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can always boost in using a podcasting 2.0 app. We recommend Fountain.fm on Android, Podverse, which is cross-platform and self-hostable, or Castomatic on Apple. Or if you really want to geek it up, boost CLI. Boost. 
This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on Friday, August 5th, 2022. I've been your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here as always with me, Chris. Thanks for joining us, everybody. See you next time.